Father, I know that was precious in your sight and very moving to me to watch a, a young dad who grew up in this church lead worship with his own little tiny fearless daughter. God, may the words she sing be a reality in her life so that as we watch her grow up and we watch her walk with you, we will see in her and her generation more faith, more love, more daring for you than we ourselves have offered. Help us now, Lord, to hear your word. Keep me from the terrible sin of laying a greater burden on anxious people. Let me do instead what you always do with anxious people and bring them relief. Not because I can offer it, but because you do. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. How is everybody? I'm going to get back up here at a socially appropriate distance, and I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles in a letter written to suffering people, 1 Peter, in the last chapter, chapter 5, 1 Peter, chapter 5. And I'm going to read to you a bigger passage that I'm going to preach and also give you the good news that just this morning, I realized in, in looking over the sermon I, I prepared to, to share with you that I really have a three-week series rather than a single sermon. The reason is, I hope, will be clear. I'm in some ways ignoring everything I was ever taught about preaching this morning. From a purely preaching point of view, from a communication standpoint, it really does hang together as I originally wrote it. But I want you to understand the context. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering greatly because of their faith in Christ. They are Jewish believers. They have been scattered by persecution. They are being engulfed by something that Peter describes as a fiery trial. In other words, it's getting serious. It's getting painful. They've likely lost relationships. They've likely lost the bond and the closeness of family, which is always precious, but it was absolutely essential in the ancient world where your family was really all that you had. They've been scattered. He refers to them as people who have been dispersed. In other words, they've had to run, most likely, for their physical safety. And they find themselves, as we do in a time of suffering, they find themselves stunned and dazed. We're going through our own suffering in this pandemic. Not one person alive likes this. We're making the best of it. Some of us have found blessings and found many reasons to be grateful in the midst of it, but I've talked to endless people. Maybe you feel the same way. They hate the phrase new normal because they say, I want the, I want the old normal back. The circumstances in First Peter are different from our own, but the commonality is suffering. And the whole letter is intended to tell them, since this is what you're going through, here's how I want you to go through it. He reminds them of the goodness of the promises of God's love. He even gives them specific directions inside their families. And at the end of the letter, he pulls back in the fifth chapter and says, let me have a word first with your pastors. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd, Peter says. Let me talk to my fellow brothers, my fellow pastors, and then let me tell all of you how to act and how to go and grow through suffering. And that, to me, has been one of the most encouraging things in it. I've heard 
countless testimonies from you, some of you who haven't been here literally in months, but you're sending me emails and text messages and private messages on Facebook, and I love it, telling me how you've stepped up, how some of you are actually studying ahead of time to teach your children the Bible since what we can offer kids digitally is so much harder for them to assimilate. I've seen many of you step not back saying, well, the church is closed, there's not much to do. No, you've come to understand that in some ways we have more work than ever, and you've stepped forward to serve. You've, you're going through it, and you have chosen to go through it with a growth mindset to be better for it. And that's what Peter is addressing here in 1 Peter 5. In the small passage I'm going to teach you, He's going to tell them specifically what they should do when they're suffering and when they feel anxious. But since I've really taken one sermon and I'm only going to share one point, I'd like to, since I have that luxury of time, I'd like to take you to the very beginning of the chapter so that you'll see my job description. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. If you ever wondered if pastors have a job description, here is one of the places in the Bible where it tells us what we're supposed to be, it tells you as a church what you should be able to expect. First Peter chapter 5, I'm in verse 1. It says, so I exhort the elders among you. That's one of three words that the New Testament uses to describe the work and the office of a pastor. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, who's that? Who's the, sheep, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. I'm just the under shepherd, okay? When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now he's going to turn to everybody. He's going to tell the church, these scattered Christians, let me take your pastors aside. Boys, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here's how you're supposed to be thinking. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now he turns to everyone, and he says in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Watch this. Here's when it gets down to us, all of us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How do you go through suffering? Since you have to go through it anyway, since we have to go through this difficult season, which we did not choose, which is not our fault, these people were going through something different and something actually much more painful. They were going through persecution from the Roman government. Their faith in Christ, their allegiance to Christ, their faithfulness to Jesus was costing them everything. It was so painful that Peter describes it again as a fiery trial. And here, right at the end of the letter, he says, in closing, here's how you go through it. And the single instruction in this verse 
is found in verse 6. If you look there, this is the most important way regarding going through a hard time and getting the benefit that God has in it. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The simple instruction is this. Humble yourself under God's hand. Literally, Peter is telling them, get low under God's hand. The Greek word to humble literally means to lower yourself. And it's counterintuitive. It's the last thing we want to do when we're suffering. What is much more natural when you're being persecuted, when you're being mistreated, when you're going through a painful time that is not your fault, the natural thing is not to get lower. The natural thing is to stand up, to fight back, to get stronger, to protest, to make things right. Peter says, no, all of you are going through this hard time together. What you specifically need to do is, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And remember, these are Jewish Christians. The New Testament is literally being written to them in their lifetimes. Most of them are not going to enjoy the New Testament that you and I have. That's going to be collected over decades. They have occasional apostolic letters like this. When they think of the Scriptures, they are thinking only of, or primarily rather, of the Old Testament. So when they see this phrase, the mighty hand of God, they're thinking of the Old Testament. They're thinking specifically of the Exodus. They're thinking of God with all of His strength. It's a word picture as God is a spirit, using his hand to open up the Red Sea and to destroy the greatest military power that was known at that time. Peter says that hand, God, is directing all of this suffering in your life. Your instinct will be to get prouder, to get stronger, to get tougher, and to stand up. What I want you to do instead is to lower yourself under God's hand so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Do you see the word picture? God's strong hand is directing all of this suffering. It's good to remember that. We are continually surprised as we go through this pandemic. If you subscribe to my weekly church email, and I hope you do, you saw a weekly email this week that took me a long time to write because I had to spend a long time on the phone because the state of California once again changed the rules for church gatherings. And I called every authority I could think of. I called experts. I called decision makers. The first three or four calls, they said, we're not sure. We don't know what to tell you. I asked, when will you know? We're not sure. We don't know what to tell you. We're all figuring this out together. That time of uncertainty, that time of suffering, the natural inclination, and you've seen it play out across our country, you've probably seen it play out very well on social media, is people saying, I've had enough, I'm standing up, I'm asserting myself. Peter says, no, the hand of God is directing your suffering. Think about how much it must have cost them to accept the fact that suffering for Jesus was God's will in their life. 
Let's just sit with this for a second and not make the Bible into kind of a hallmark card of idealism that has nothing to do with our life. Do you readily accept suffering? When pain and suffering and discomfort and fear come into your life, especially if it's imposed by other people, is your natural inclination to say, oh, good, this will be good for me? No, not for a moment. Nobody wants that. Peter here is telling you that the hand of God in suffering is like the hand of a skillful surgeon. He's operating in, a li- in their lives in a way that they're going to find painful. They're going to find difficult, but it is ultimately for their healing and for their health. I want to give you a phrase to ponder as we move through this together. As God works to conform you to the image of Jesus, God will often hurt you, but never harm you. And there's a huge difference. When I was in junior high school, because of a clumsy teacher in a parent softball game, I shattered this left leg. I shattered it because he stepped on it. The only reason I can walk and run and do anything I please without any trouble at all is because a surgeon and an anesthesiologist put me all the way under and moved some bones around, and it caused a great deal of pain. It caused a great deal of hurt. It took me months to recover from the fracture and the atrophy that followed. I was initially resentful of everything and everyone. I was even upset with the doctor because in my childlike mind, if he was a good doctor, none of this would hurt. But I now understand all these years later that the only way to restore my health and give me a normal adulthood and childhood and uh, years of sports was for him to hurt me. It was hurtful, but it wasn't harmful. It was actually all intended for my health. This is what Peter is reassuring these suffering Christians of. Look again in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Here's the bottom line assurance you can have, because He, what's it say? He cares for you. In all of this, he cares for you. One of the hardest things to learn in following Jesus is not to measure God's character by your circumstances. If you measure the faithfulness and the love of God by your present circumstances, you'll have a much harder time. If you think that because circumstances are pleasant, that means that God is good and loving and faithful, But when times are hard, it must mean that God is neglectful or cruel or unaware. You're going to go through a very, very difficult season. Peter says all of this is directed by God's hand. He's telling you and inviting you to throw all your anxieties on Him. The strong hand that has led you into this and is holding you in this time of trouble will someday turn beneath you and lift you up out of it. It says at the proper time, He may exalt you. And all the while, you can throw all of your worries and fears and anxieties on Him because here is something you can depend on. He cares for you. But what you have to do is get low under God's hand. You have to choose specifically not to get stronger, not to get big, not to get tall, not to fight back, but to cooperate with His work by getting low under His hand. And the context gives me very specific ideas of how to do that. 
The first place that shows up, here's the sure way you can tell. I'm going to tell you, first of all, how you can tell if you've humbled yourself under God's hand. And then secondly, and this is the reason I slowed down what could have been one sermon, I want to tell you specifically what to do with your anxieties. Because the greatest and worst and most common thing that Bible teachers and pastors do to people who struggle with anxiety and fear is tell them that it's wrong and to get over it. Anybody ever done that for you? Yeah, me too. See right here, it says you're, you're wrong. You stop doing that. Thank you. I'm aware. I'm, I'm aware it's wrong. I'm aware it's hurting me. What I want to know is how. And I want to give you some very specific and practical personal application that the Lord has taught me from the Scriptures and from experience on how to do that. First, the context tells you how you can tell. Because the specific commandment is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how would I ever know if I'm doing that? Because the tricky thing about humility, I don't know if you've noticed, the tricky thing about humility is the moment you notice you're humble, you're not. You ever caught yourself being humble? A very uncooperative group. I know you're masked. I can't see any facial expressions. Just uh, tell me the truth. Have you ever caught yourself being humble? I have. There have been more than one occasion where I thought I did a pretty solid job as a pastor, and I walked away from a difficult encounter thinking to myself, I hope they appreciated how Christ-like that was. That was really good pastoring on my part. I hope they noticed. And at that moment, according to Jesus, I lost all the reward because I did it to be noticed. And Jesus would say, that little self-congratulations that little pat on the back you gave yourself for being such an amazing pastor, that's your reward. Enjoy that all day because that's all you're ever going to get from that encounter. The way you can tell whether you've humbled yourself in the, under the hand of God is actually your relationships with others, your personal relationships. Look in verse 5. It says, likewise, you who are younger, remember Peter takes the pastors aside and says, pastors, here's how you're to act. Then he turns to the whole congregation. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. If you have pastors like these, if you have elders in the faith that are caring for you this way, do what they ask. Follow their lead. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility for, toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Please notice that instruction. Before you're told to humble yourself under God's hand, you're told to do something in relationship to the people around you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's a really rare phrase in Greek. To clothe yourself with humility, and that tells me this, this lowering in my relationship with God and my relationship with you is something that I can choose every day just the way I choose what clothes to wear every day. If you are in Christ, you have a spiritual choice. You have the freedom and the power to be humble. Don't judge them, but you can look around at the clothing you chose for the day and the clothing that other people chose for the day. Don't make any comments about their choices, okay? Some of us may have been accustomed to church online and we're still in super casual mode. That's fine. At my house, that sounds like this. Bruce, is that what you're going to wear? And it's not really a question. It's a statement, okay? 
For those who are listening well, that means please don't wear that, okay? At least not if we're going out together. But humility is something you can clothe yourself with. You can choose in the morning before you have contact with other people, you can choose to have a lower estimation of yourself and a higher estimation of them. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then he tells you why. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that may be in quotes in your translation because Peter here is literally quoting the Old Testament. He's drawing from the book of Proverbs and he's reminding you of one of the most important spiritual principles and truths in the entire Bible. When God finds humble people, people who choose to lower themselves, he always blesses them. Wherever God finds proud people, he always opposes them. Look carefully, please, at verse 5. God opposes the proud. That's quite a statement. That means that if you are filled with yourself, if you are the kind who is not lowering yourself under God's hand, but you're standing up, making yourself bigger, making yourself stronger, telling yourself and others that you can handle it, at that moment, not only will God withdraw his blessing, he'll actively start opposing you. Does anybody here want to be in a condition that causes the opposition of God? Now, why would he do that? Is he cruel? No, God knows that that prideful self-determination is headed straight toward disaster and death for you. This is one of these places where he might have to hurt you so that to break you of your pride. And the, the reason I'm telling you all this is Verse 5 and verse 6 are connected. Peter says in verse 5, humble yourselves with one another, each of you, all of you. I did a careful study in Greek where it says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you. All of you simply means all of you. Okay? This is the kind of deep Greek insight that you uh, come to church for. It means every single person in the congregation, wherever you are at the spiritual table, if you've just been born into the family of God, or if you're the senior pastor, what all of you have to do every day is choose the clothing of humility toward one another, remembering that as you're humble with each other, God will bless you individually and collectively. If you're not, he will oppose you. And I had a a great example and such a great reason to be grateful for our church this week that really showed me the value of this instruction in church life. You see, there's not a pastor alive, including the man who's talking to you, who really knows what to do in a pandemic. None of us have been here. I actually sent an email to one of my seminary professors a few days ago and said, you know, 98 units is a very long time to be in seminary. You never mentioned a pandemic. And he wrote back and said, "Uh, we're, we're, we're working on it. It'll be in the curriculum next time. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Maybe I'll take those courses when it's all over. None of us have any idea what to do. We're all calling and texting and messaging each other. We're all watching each other's services and looking on each other's websites, trying to find out the best information, the best wisdom to move forward with you through this. And that's why just yesterday I was looking at one of those churches that I would consider an example, kind of a benchmark church in my estimation. Like us, they have a rather active Facebook page. 
And I saw that the church posted some little innocuous, encouraging something, and I don't know if you've seen this. There's a, a, just a simple little announcement, and then there's 146 comments below the announcement, which tells you that a fight started, right? If, there's a, if somebody says good morning and there's over 100 comments under good morning, somebody started a fight in the comments. Like, well, that, that was pretty straightforward from the church. I wonder what happened. So I read the comments. If you want to escape anxiety in these days, don't read the comments, okay? It's not recommended. Well, what happened was a woman in the church just tore into everybody publicly. She tore into her fellow church members. She tore into uh, the church leadership. She lamented the state of the nation. She gave a history lesson. She made projections about the future of the country. I mean, it was, it was a mess. It was a grease fire of an argument. And in the middle of all that, she said, I prayed about this for hours. And this passage, I'm telling you, tells me that either can't be true or she didn't really hear from God. Because the point of this is simple. If you humble yourself under God's hand, it'll always show up in the way you treat other people. This is one of the most toxic and harmful things that Christians do. They say, I know the Lord, I love the Lord, I've heard from the Lord, and that's why I'm treating you like trash. It's not true. John the Apostle, the Apostle of Love, will say at length in his first letter that you can't claim to love the God you do not see while you act with hatred towards your brother who's right in front of you. The way our humility, our lowering under the hand of God always shows up is not in the life we claim to have with God privately, but in the life we show with others publicly. The stories of our personal relationships always tell the truth whether we have chosen in a time of suffering to do the first essential thing and get under God's hand. 1 Peter chapter 5 Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the essential command, and I'm nearly done. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. When would you like the time for God's hand to go from over you to under you and lift you up and exalt you out of this? When would you like that to be? March would be nice, right? No, God's hand is directing this. Your simple instruction is to humble yourself under his hand, knowing that he will lift you up and out of it. He will exalt you at the time when he is chosen, when you have learned, when the things that he has orchestrated, very few of which you will understand, when his work is done, that's when the relief will come, and here's what you are to do in the meantime. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that verse is why I slowed this sermon down and made it into a series. The instruction, the first essential thing, the thing that controls all the others and that goes before all the others that I'm going to share with you for the next two weeks is in a time of suffering, don't stand up and fight back. Get low under God's hand. 
You'll always be able to tell if you did by the way you treat the people around you and the way specifically you humble yourself under God's hand is, in verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. If I could give you just one more geeky note. Bible translations sometimes really matter. You'll notice your grammar teacher way back when told you to pay attention to things like verbs and participles, and hardly anybody knows what that that means, but I'll try to explain. God said in verse 6, in a time of suffering, humble yourself under my hand. That's what you are to do. When suffering and anxiety crash into your life, the first thing you want to remember is to get low under God's hand. Not to stand up, not to get stronger, not to fight back, not to assert yourself. There will be time for action. You'll need to make decisions. You'll have to take action at a certain point. But the essential thing is to accept what God is doing and place yourself low under His sheltering hand because He cares for you. And he can lift you up out of these difficult circumstances anytime he pleases. When will that be? Only he knows. How do you humble yourself under his hand? This is why the translation matters. Some translations translated, verse 6, humble yourselves under God's hand, and then they, tra- then they translated, cast all your anxieties on him. The translation I'm reading to you, and this very, very close to the original Greek language, says, humble yourselves, casting. One translation spells it out for you, what I'm trying to explain to you. The way to humble yourself under God's hand is by throwing all your anxiety on Him. It's not separate commandments. God is telling you anxious people, fearful people like myself. Bruce, when suffering and anxiety come, the way to get beneath my sheltering hand is to throw, to cast, to deposit all of your anxious thoughts on me. Here's where it's going to get really personal and I hope really practical. The Illness and malady of our age is anxiety. We are an anxious, anxious people. Statistically speaking, until the pandemic hit, life has never been better in a lot of important ways. Food, wealth, safety. For almost all Americans, historically speaking, life has never been better. And at the same time, we've never been more anxious than we are right now. And I understand that, and this is where I want to hopefully give you relief and and practical direction, not a further burden. I understand that because I've had a black belt in worry for a long, long time. I can take one bad event and extrapolate that out into disaster. Anybody else good at this? Okay, I know a couple of you. Yeah, we've talked. Thank you for your honesty. For instance... I'll preach a lousy sermon. As I'm preaching it, I know it's bad. I thought it would be okay. I thought it would be good, but sermons are kind of like airplanes sometimes. You discover that something is wrong wrong already in flight, right? You wouldn't take off if you thought it was going to be a disaster. 
And I struggled through it. At one point, I remember years ago, I essentially apologized to everybody in the middle of the sermon because it was going so poorly. And that's not what you work for, and that's not what you pray for. So I go home, and I'm just burdened and sad and embarrassed. You fellow preachers, you know what I'm talking about. And then I'll start thinking from one bad sermon, by the time I'm done with it, the church has failed, been sold at auction, and is now a strip mall. And my children are so ashamed that they've changed their names and moved to different parts of the country to live as nomads, right, who don't know their own father. I mean, I can do that. I can do that in my work as a pastor. I can do that as a husband. I can do that as a father. I can do that as a friend. I have this amazing ability to project forward with negativity. That's really the heart of anxiety that takes real suffering and creates with forward projection such a disastrous scenario that you can't move. And you just want to go back to bed or you want to give up. You're frozen. Does this make sense to anybody? Let me tell you very specifically what I've learned to do from Scripture. And in the last 10 years or so, modern science is catching up and validating and explaining what God has always known and what Jesus told us to do. The moment I realize that I am projecting forward with that kind of negativity, I use this phrase, I wake up. Because many anxious people, especially anxious Christians in a time of suffering, aren't actually living in the day they're in. When I go home after that terrible sermon, I'm not actually in my bedroom I'm somewhere in North Dakota working at a truck stop trying to erase the memory that I was ever a pastor. The moment I realize that I am not in the moment, I wake up. I just realize my mind has run away with me. My anxious fears have taken me into a disastrous future that doesn't even exist. At that moment, I do what Peter says here, and I cast all my anxieties on God by telling him specifically everything I'm thinking and feeling. And if we're using the example of a terrible sermon, I might say, God, that was a terrible sermon. Your people deserved better. If it was terrible because I was lazy, I'll confess laziness. If it was terrible because I was proud and thought I'd figure it out as I go, I'll confess pride. If I'm puzzled because I did the best I could and it was still terrible, I'll tell him how anxious and fearful I am about all those things. This is how I specifically cast my anxieties on God. Let me give you some encouragement. You can tell God anything because God already knows everything. You can tell your heavenly Father the whole ugly story. You don't have to mince words or choose them carefully because he already knows the depth of your thoughts. And then... Having done that, I wake up, I tell him all about it by turning to him, and then I re-engage with the day I'm actually living in. It's a Sunday afternoon. It may be time to stop moping and get out of the bedroom and go have dinner with my family. If I'm still moping on a, Sunday mor- on a Monday morning, what do you think a pastor who preached a terrible sermon on Sunday might be doing on Monday? What might be a good idea to avoid it the second time? Maybe study a little more, right? Maybe ask for help. Maybe call one of the guys who tried to teach me how to preach and say, 
I blew a sermon up and everybody got burned in the explosion. What do you think went wrong? In other words, I'm re-engaging with the day and with the task at hand. Jesus knew this all along. This is why Jesus said, mark it carefully, Jesus said, don't be anxious about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. What is Jesus telling you? Don't let your anxious thoughts run away with you. Live in the day you're given. This is how I cast my burdens on God. I hope it's helpful. It's not magic and it's not quick. But I can tell you on the authority of Scripture and the practice of years, you can learn to free yourself from anxious fears. That groove that you've worn into your life that so easily goes to the darkest and worst place, you've learned to live that way apart from God. Your heavenly Father welcomes you out of that and can teach you to walk in a new path because of what it says at the end of verse 7. It says, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Nobody loves you more in that anxious pit than your father does. You've learned to act that way because you think it's the smartest and it's the best way to live. It's not. It's not even planning. It's not in any way helpful. All it does is paralyze you. Throw it on God instead because he cares for you. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this. The way to go and grow through suffering, the first and essential thing is this. You need to get under God's hand by specifically throwing your anxieties on Him until your loving Heavenly Father lifts you up. Let's pray together. Could I invite you to practice with me for a second? The process I've just described is something you may have to do thousands and thousands of times. I do. I probably do it hundreds of times a week as I arrest my runaway mind Remember the day and the moment I'm actually in. Obey Jesus by not worrying about tomorrow. Turn to my Father and tell Him all about it. And then get back to the actual day He's given me now. Yesterday's gone. I can't live in tomorrow. I can tell Him my troubles and I can re-engage this day. So if you've been anxious and fearful, let me just give you a moment there at home or here in the room to practice and tell your father all about it. And then we're going to say amen and we're going to go live this day, this good day that God has given us, this day, this life, this health, this blessing, this opportunity. We're going to go live that. Tell him all about it. And you'll need to do it again later today, but tell him all about it for now. Father, you know our sufferings and trials. You know the fears that we've already faced. You know how some have been made worse and some are new because of this pandemic and all the economic and emotional and relational trouble that all of it has brought. As my brothers and sisters call out to you, Lord, thank you for caring for us. Thank you that we can name all of our fears and be heard and we are loved in that moment. We're not just tolerated and listened to. We are loved dearly. So help us like little overburdened children throw our heavy burdens on you and do it again and again and again and again 
until we actually do leave them with you and we live the day you've given instead. Friends at home, if you need prayer, just send us a text. You can send the word welcome to 714-868-7258. If you need the Lord, you need to trust him as Savior, you need prayer, just send the word Jesus to that same number. Just text Jesus to 714-868-7258. I'm not telling you any of this is easy. I'm telling you it's true. I'm telling you it's real. I'm telling you it works. You can cast all of your anxieties on your loving Heavenly Father. You can be patient in suffering until He lifts you up. And it's all because He cares for you. Father, thank you for that assurance. Thank you for the day and the morning that we've enjoyed together. Bless the families and the dads that are here and those who were celebrated home. Comfort, Lord, those who are missing their dad or for whom this day is difficult. And remind us all of your great fatherhood that welcomes us like little frightened children to cast all of our cares on you because you care for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Cross point said, amen. God bless you folks. Thank you for joining us. We love you.